Hello, everybody. Welcome back to You Can't Win. This is Tom here. Uh, this is the fourth installment of our series covering the Franklin scandal, and this is all part of a broader series taking a look at the book Program to Kill by Dave McGowan. Uh, this Franklin scandal series is essentially a walkthrough of the book The Franklin Scandal by Nick Bryant. So in our first episodes, we followed the rise of Larry King. Uh, he was born into a low-income family. He had a short career in the U.S. Air Force as an intelligence officer in Vietnam. And then when he returned back to the U.S., uh, he took over the failing Franklin Credit Union and uh, managed to turn it around and have runaway success. He generated millions of dollars, uh, largely through pyramid schemes and later large donations from Republican politicians who were all in attendance at his famous parties. He rose to national prominence as a black Republican. Uh, he sang the national anthem at the GOP National Convention, and he socialized with the Reagans and Clarence Thomas and all the other big-time players in the Republican Party. He had an op-ed published in the Washington Post entitled, Why Blacks Should Be Republican. He hosted a massive party at the South Fork Ranch, where they filmed the biggest TV show in the country at the time, Dynasty. Rumors and reports of child abuse, drug dealing, and other criminal behavior dogged him from the start. Children in foster care of his cousin Barbara Webb, bearing apparent physical evidence on their bodies, reported violence done to them by King and Webb. They were ignored by authorities in the local police department, the state patrol, and in the FBI. These authorities dismissed the reports as insubstantial. Eventually, the testimonies and evidence coming to light became too compelling to simply hand-wave away, and state senators formed a bipartisan committee to perform an independent investigation into the facts surrounding King. Additionally, a group of citizens named Concerned Parents formed around the issue as well. Both the senators in the committee and members of Concerned Parents were subjected to an intense campaign of harassment, terrorism, and intimidation. Ultimately, although the initial evidence was undeniably compelling, the investigation led by Kirk Naylor and Jerry Lowe fell apart as various members lost the will to continue. Eventually, they also left the investigation, citing the lack of a prosecutable case. And so from there we pick up the story. After the resignation of the committee's lead first team of investigators, they hired Gary Caridori to replace them. Caridori was described by the committee's attorney, John Stevens Barry, as the finest private investigator in this part of the country. Caridori was the CEO of Lincoln-based Caracor Incorporated, which employed 120 people across eight states, providing security investigative services. 40-year-old Caridori was a seasoned investigator, and he specialized in finding missing persons, particularly abducted children and teenage girls involved in drugs and prostitution. His name had appeared many times over the years in the local papers, recounting his exploits. As reported in the Lincoln Journal, he said, If I didn't have to make a living, I'd track them down for free. In a different article, the Lincoln Journal said about him, When the police tell you their hands are tied, when your only witness has skipped town, and when the justice system seems like it's breaking apart, people call Gary Caridori. Caridori was born in 1949, the son of a teacher and housekeeper in the small township of Ralston, southwest of Omaha. He married his high school sweetheart at the age of 20, and they had two sons, Sean and Andrew James, or AJ. After high school, Caridori was drafted into the Coast Guard, 
and was stationed in Alaska, where his duties included handling teletype messages and directing aircraft. He was also sent to study submarine warfare at Radar Man School on Governor's Island in New York. He spent two years abroad on the Coast Guard cutter Mellon, including one year in Vietnam. He supervised eight men as a, as a second-class Radar Man on the Mellon. After his honorable discharge in 1971, Caridori joined the Nebraska State Patrol. His leadership qualities and instinctive investigatory talents impressed his supervisors, and he was promptly placed in charge of one of the state's six mobile crime evidence vans. A few years later, at the age of 23, he was transferred to the NSP's criminal division, becoming one of the youngest men to ever have been appointed as an NSP investigator. There, he refined his skills by enrolling in numerous FBI-sponsored training courses, including snipers, bomb threats and hostage school, criminal investigation photo lab, and sex crime investigation. He left the NSP in good standing in March 1977 to become co-proprietor of JC Security and Detective Agency. Four years later, he formed a second partnership, and finally, in February 1989, he founded his own company, Caracor, landing investigative contracts from a number of large corporations, uh, among them ConAgra, Cargill, and Archer's Daniels Midland. One August afternoon in 1989, Senator Lauren Schmidt made an unannounced visit to the Caracor offices and was lucky enough to catch Caridori there. Caridori was rarely actually at the offices and traveled in excess of 150,000 miles a year. Sitting in Caridori's office in well-padded leather chairs, the two licensed pilots broke the ice by discussing airplanes and other generalities before Schmidt broached the subject of the Franklin Credit Union. Caridori had spent most of the previous years working around the country and wasn't familiar with the particulars of the case. Initially, he thought that the Franklin Credit Union was, quote, just another bank that went under. After this meeting, Caridori was invited the following week to meet the entire committee whereupon they voted on his appointment, and he became the new lead investigator. He began working on the Franklin investigation on the 21st of August. He pored over the reports and memos generated by his predecessors, as well as all of the documentation and testimony collected by the committee. Caridori wanted to reopen an investigation into the federal and state investigations. Early on, he received a call from an old friend of his, an OPD lieutenant, who warned him to be careful and that the sexual component of the case had been covered up from the start. Caridori assigned one of his trusted employees at Caridor, Karen Ormiston, as his principal assistant. Their investigative styles were complementary. Caridori would gather up a mountain of evidence, and Ormiston would follow up, carefully collating and processing the findings. In interviews with newspapers regarding previous investigations, Caridori often discussed the need of nurturing a network of contacts and informants, and he applied this methodology to the Franklin case as well. His reports show that just a few weeks into the investigation, he began having several meetings with confidential informants, or CIs. It was not uncommon for him to log 100-plus hours uh, in the week, as he spoke to scores of potential informants in bars and sordid nocturnal haunts all over the city. The gossip he heard from these conversations would largely corroborate the rumors of Larry King's abuse of children. His wife told Bryant, that Caridori began taking long, hot showers to relax and perhaps cleanse his mind and soul as he excavated the underworld of Omaha, Nebraska. 
From the very start of his investigation, Caridori encountered several unexpected obstacles. His investigative reports, written during the first two months of his work, described formidable barriers of distrust and a pall of fear that he faced in trying to cultivate CIs or simply interview individuals who had previously volunteered information. The Franklin Committee had become suspicious to them, thought to be merely serving a role in an ongoing cover-up. They feared divulging specific or personal information that would blow their anonymity and put them in danger, especially since they felt those disclosures would inevitably be published in the World Herald. In September, Caridori wrote a memo to the committee insisting that it was crucial that nothing be published implicating specific individuals until after the investigation is completed. Caridori soon suspected that his phones were being tapped. According to his wife, he told her that whenever he arranged meetings over the phone, the FBI would already be at the designated place when he arrived. Ormiston commented, When our office phones started malfunctioning, Gary contacted his friend at Lincoln Telephone, who stopped by our office. After he fidgeted with our jacks for a few minutes, he electronically zeroed in on a room where we heard people talking. They eventually realized that their jack was open, and suddenly it cut off. This was a glitch characteristic of wiretap technology at the time. A letter to Lincoln Telephone requesting information concerning the monitoring of their phone lines was simply refused to be honored, even after sending a subpoena that they requested. In addition to tapped phones, he was subjected to home intrusion. On September 14, while the Caridores were out with friends and their kids home asleep, someone entered their home around 10 p.m. Their oldest son, Sean, was alerted to the trespasser by the family's barking dogs, and then he heard a door open and close. Caridori filed a trespassing report with the Lincoln Police Department, but the intruder was never apprehended. Caridori would also follow the money, as it were, obtaining access to the archives of the Reconstruction Office set up in Omaha by the National Credit Union Association, the NCUA, in the wake of the credit union's closure. The offices housed stacks of boxes that contained thousands of checks, invoices, receipts, and other documents associated with the credit union. Caridori and Ormiston were welcomed during the normal Monday to Friday business hours and allowed to make copies. They were also provided with leads by a ranking NCUA official in Washington, D.C. In some of the boxes at the NCUA Reconstruction Office, they discovered scores of receipts from various air charter services. These rarely listed passengers or merely listed Larry King. The receipts revealed that King charted Learjets on an almost weekly basis and that, although he jetted to numerous locations throughout the country, his favored destination was Washington, D.C. This presented a fresh avenue of investigation, and in his September report, Caridori indicated that he contacted a charter service in Columbus, Ohio, repeatedly used by King, but the company's lawyer rebuffed his request for flight records, demanding a subpoena. Unfortunately, the Franklin Committee's subpoena power had no standing outside the borders of Nebraska. In October, however, Caridori made contact with a pilot from another charter service frequented by King. The pilot informed Caridori that he had piloted King two teenage boys, and a teenage girl to Los Angeles. Caridori phoned another pilot from the same charter service who acknowledged that minors accompanied King on flights. In another meeting, 
with a former employee of a third charter service frequented by King. The former employee, although reticent about being connected to the Franklin investigation, disclosed that King used the charter service on a weekly basis and routinely traveled with a number of young men who she described as very good-looking, dressed in fancy suits, clean-cut, and clean-shaven. She also remarked that the young men never spoke, which she found strange. Finally, a fourth charter service, patronized by King, located in Sioux City, Iowa, allowed them access to a basement room where they stored their records. There, they found Franklin Credit Union itineraries, listing children whose names had surfaced during his investigation. As Caridori continued to burrow through the records, Ormiston darted to a nearby copy machine with the itineraries. One document Caridori found had a sticker on it, denoting a previous FBI inquiry. Caridori and Ormiston were on the verge of leaving the charter service, copies of their newfound cash in hand, when the company's chief executive stormed in and demanded they leave and leave without the copies. Caridori and Ormiston grudgingly gave up this evidence that signified a sterling lead for the investigation, and, because the Franklin Committee's subpoenas lacked authority in Iowa, called his NCUA contact in D.C. and implored him to authorize a federal subpoena for the company's flight itineraries. The NCUA official agreed to subpoena the Charter Service's records, but while Caridori waited for the itineraries, he was slapped with a federal subpoena that demanded he surrender Franklin evidence to the FBI. He found this vexing, since the committee routinely surrendered its evidence to state and federal authorities anyway. He nonetheless complied and delivered a bundle of files to Omaha's FBI headquarters. Glancing at the desk of the FBI agent receiving the files, he noticed a stack of documents from the Charter Service in Sioux City, Iowa. A few weeks later, he picked up copies of the itinerary from Senator Schmidt's office at the State House. Schmidt was on the phone at the time, but handed Caridori an envelope containing the subpoenaed documents. As he leafed through them, he quickly realized they had been altered. All the incriminating information relating to the interstate transportation of children had been deleted. Caridori continued to arrange meetings with confidential informants. Caridori later said that Alicia Owen was just one of numerous names he had scribbled on a scratch pad while talking to Michael Casey a highly unreliable CI related to the case, but who had nonetheless provided a long list of names, potential leads, that Caridori was working his way through. Casey had worked at Boys Town. He was fired for stealing secret records and attempting to sell them to MGM as story material for a TV series based on the orphanage, and had told Caridori, to Caridori's disbelief, that he had access to a videotape depicting Larry King engaged in sexual acts with children. Alicia Owen and Michael Casey had met as patients in Omaha's St. Joseph Hospital psychiatric ward. Owen had been admitted the year before for depression after she attempted to commit suicide, and Casey, though he bragged to a friend that he had successfully faked mental illness in order to befriend Owen at the hospital, had a long history of alcohol abuse and was possibly drying out in the psychiatric hospital. In any case, Owen was for Caridori a very low-priority lead, so three weeks lapsed between Caridori's initial meeting on October 11th and his eventual trek to York for the interview proper on October 30th. Caridori and Ormiston arrived at York around 7 p.m. and had requested earlier that afternoon to meet Owen in a location with some measure of privacy. They were escorted to a conference room in the prison basement. 
This interview was the last thing on the agenda, and it had been a long day of chasing charter service leads. A pair of guards ushered Owen into the room. Caradori and Ormiston introduced themselves to her. She was 21 years old, but had the timidity of a teenager. Caradori was tired. He cut to the chase. Owen was initially hesitant to discuss her past, but, as she would later convey to Nick Bryant, Caradori and Ormiston exuded an integrity that allayed her suspicions and fears. Over the next three hours, she provided them a full account of how she got involved with Larry King and the exploitation of children and other criminal operations at his parties in Twin Towers. At the end of the interview, Caradori asked Owen if she would be willing to make a formal statement the following week. Owen replied that she would like to talk to her parents about it first, because her cooperation would potentially endanger her family. After two nights of nightmares, as a result of recounting her experiences to Caridori and Ormiston, Alicia Owen requested a psychiatric consult. When she entered the psychiatrist's office, she insisted that he turn off his tape recorder and take no notes. The psychiatrist acquiesced, and she opened up. The psychiatrist was taken aback and insisted that Owen discuss her situation with the warden. She went to the warden, and after the warden granted the same assurances as the psychiatrist, she told him about her history and her dilemma of whether or not she should grant the formal interview to Caradori. She told the warden she had been a witness and victim of child abuse and numerous other activities by suspects in the Franklin Credit Union investigation, and that she had anxiety about her safety at the prison, and that their authority might extend into the prison and possibly affect the warden. The warden assured her that he was not at all inclined to be receptive to bribes, which Owen accepted with an expression of relief that she had talked to him about her problems. Later that week, Alicia's parents, Al and Donna Owen, visited her at York, and she took a walk in the yard with her mother. Owen revealed her secrets to her mother for the first time. Her mother was dumbfounded, but the revelations made sense of her peculiar behavior that had started at the age of 14. They cried together, and her mother asked her daughter why she hadn't come to her parents for help. Alicia said that she knew they would not allow the perpetrators to go unchallenged, and that they would have been murdered for it. Alicia phoned Caridori later and consented to be interviewed. The formal interview was held on November 7, the videotaping starting around 11.30 a.m., and, with a series of respites and breaks, they finished at 10 p.m. Uh, at this point, I just want to make a note that the content of the, uh, the episode is about to get a little uncomfortable. We're going to go in some detail into Alicia Owen's testimony, and it does involve depictions of... Uh, some of the experiences that she had. Um, so if that's not something you're into right now, uh, fair warning. The Owens were a deeply religious family. Al and Donna had been married nearly 25 years, and Al was the proprietor of a modest construction company. There were four kids. Alicia was the second oldest. The children were enrolled in a strict parochial school, which Alicia attended from kindergarten through sixth grade. She entered public school in 7th grade. At the age of 13 or so, Alicia developed a rebellious streak. Alicia told Caridori and Ormiston that she was 14 when she met a group of Boys Town students, including Jeff Hubble, at an outdoor dance in August of 1983. Hubble invited her to a party that would be, quote, a flood of alcohol and a blizzard of cocaine. That Friday night, Hubble and a friend picked up Owen and drove her to the Twin Towers. 
The Twin Towers was a world removed from hers. The living room had a fully stocked bar, plush furniture, a big screen TV on which a pornographic movie depicting two adolescent males played. Lines of cocaine were splayed on a mirrored table next to a maroon couch, and through the living room's large windows a spectacular nightscape of downtown Omaha. The party consisted of six adults and twenty minors. Alicia didn't recognize any of the adults at the time, but she would later learn they included Larry King and Alan Baer, a prominent Omaha millionaire. She was also introduced to an older man named Rob. Alicia told Caridori and Ormiston that she felt uncomfortable at the parties, but the novelty and the glamour of the environment exhilarated her and made her feel sophisticated. She did cocaine for the first time and was allowed to play bartender. She became increasingly intoxicated as the night wore on. The adults then watched the minors play the 501 game, which involved them unbuttoning each other's jeans with their teeth and toes. Alicia made it clear that she did not partake in explicit sexual acts at the first party. She did, however, observe adults fondling minors and some of the adults and minors shuffling in and out of the bedrooms. She arrived home at 1.30 a.m., an hour after her curfew was up, and she received a scolding from her mother but was not grounded. Over the next few days, as Alicia tried to sort out her conflicted feelings about the night at Twin Towers, she was phoned by a boy she met at the party, Troy Boner. He talked to her about what a great time they had, and that call ultimately convinced her to attend a second party at the Towers the following night. She requested permission from her parents to stay the night at a friend's house, and they consented. In attendance at the second party, again King, Bear, and Rob, but also World Herald columnist Peter Cintron. Alicia became extremely drunk on champagne and shots of cognac while the kids played the 501 game again. She stumbled into the bathroom and saw a pubescent boy performing oral sex on, on Larry King. At this point, Rob asked her to undo his pants zipper with her teeth. She balked at the request. Rob teased and taunted her for being a little girl. She succumbed to the taunts and knelt before Rob. He placed a pillow under her knees so that she could reach him. A quiet fell over the room. She performed the task. He ran his fingers through her hair. He then sat in a chair, holding a glass of cognac, and invited her to sit in his lap. She did so, and he caressed her body. Alicia told Caridori and Ormiston that Rob was really nice. After he left the party some time later, she lost her virginity to Troy Boner. In retrospect, she told Caridori and Ormiston she thought she was supposed to lose her virginity that night in order to be sexually available to the group. She attended a third Towers party three weeks later. Rob showed up about an hour after she arrived. She felt that he had probably been called when she arrived. It was a sparse gathering that night. Adults and kids trickled into bedrooms, leaving Alicia and Rob alone in the living room. She was wearing a leather jumpsuit. He told her that he knew that she had lost her virginity and thought she was pretty. He felt her up. He asked her if her parents knew that she had lost her virginity, and she was mortified at the thought that he might tell them about her prom promiscuity. He began unzipping her jumpsuit, and she implored him to stop. He clenched her fist and twisted it. Rob removed her clothing and continued talking, complimenting her mouth, 
and asked if she knew the meaning of fellatio. Later, after the act, she ran to the bathroom and vomited. She began to cry. Rob comforted her, apologized, and said he would like to take her to lunch on Wednesday afternoon. He told her to pick out a dress at a department store downtown that was owned by Alan Bear and to ask for it to be put on hold. She was given a ride home by one of the attendees. On the drive home, they told her that Rob was chief of Omaha Police Department, Robert Wadman. She feared that Rob would tell her parents about their encounter. While discussing her relationship with Wadman, Alicia occasionally stared at the floor or broke into tears. Caridori briefly stopped the interview at one point when she burst out crying. She said that the following Monday after school, she went to Alan Bear's store. She found a dress she liked, filled out a receipt, gave it to the clerk, a 51-year-old woman with glasses and dyed auburn hair. Caridori asked her a number of questions about the dress, and she replied, size 10, black, lace dress, $115. Alicia told Caridori and Ormiston that Wadman picked her up across the street from Central High School on Wednesday at 1 p.m. in a brown compact car. He drove her to a chic French cafe in downtown Omaha. Alicia disclosed that the cafe's owners and hostess frequented King's parties. The cafe was generally closed in the afternoons, but the hostess guided her and Wadman to one of the cafe's small side rooms. There, seated at a table, Wadman handed her a wrapped package that contained the dress she had picked up on Monday, and then they ordered lunch. She ordered a crepe that she didn't like and picked at with her fork. After lunch, Wadman offered to show her the cafe's wine cellar. She followed him through the kitchen and down a stairway to the left. Alicia told Caridori and Ormiston that the basement was rickety and yucky, and there was no wine cellar. Wadman requested that she put the dress on in front of him. Alicia told Caridori and Ormiston that at this point she was afraid of being raped. She gazed up at the basement ceiling's molding and tried to think of anything else but what was happening. Wadman told her that she had a beautiful body and did not need to feel ashamed. She felt like a heel for not acquiescing to the request because the dress was so expensive. She disrobed and began to slip into the dress. While she was doing so, Wadman caressed her breasts and then pulled down his pants and started to masturbate. He tried to ejaculate on her, but she jumped back, and he was incensed that she had recoiled. Two weeks later, she attended another Twin Towers party, and Wadman eventually showed up. She was afraid of him and tried to leave, but Larry King's enforcer, who was also named Larry, said, You're not leaving. Alicia quickly found herself in over her head. They started to pay her to work as a drug courier. Larry King and the other Larry, a 20-year-old African-American whom she called Larry the Kid because she did not know his last name, repeatedly threatened her life and the lives of her family members, and Larry the Kid occasionally slapped her around and raped her. The threat of retribution was very real to her. She had heard of kids who were either sold or murdered. Alicia said she began to meet Wadman on sporadic Wednesday afternoons, engage in group sexual encounters, and fly with King to Los Angeles and Kansas City to be pandered as an underage prostitute. She described extremely sadistic abuse on the out-of-town trips. Alicia also discussed the circumstances of her incarceration with Caridori and Ormiston. Shortly before the Franklin Credit Union was raided, she said, Larry King and Alan Bear had insisted that she and Troy Boner 
with whom she had become romantically involved and now lived with, relocate to California. Something about this did not seem right to Alicia. She felt suspicious of Troy, and she felt that they had become too old to be pandered to King's pitifilic clientele. And their detailed knowledge of the network posed a significant risk with the potential heat that might follow the raid. Troy had Alicia write a flurry of checks to feed his cocaine habit, and Bear agreed to cover the checks when they left for California. She worried that this was pretext for her ending up in a body bag, and decided not to leave Nebraska. Bear rescinded his financial support, and Troy's checks bounced. A Douglas County judge then imposed a three- to four-year sentence on Alicia for bad checks, the respective amounts of which were $378.04 and $358.92. She had attempted to commit suicide after the sentencing, landing herself in St. Joseph's Hospital, and there she met Michael Casey, the C.I. who gave her name to Caridori and who had claimed to have feigned mental illness in order to cultivate a friendship with her. All right, guys, that is the end of the episode for today. Thank you for listening, and we will catch you next time.